No parent wants their child to have to deal with disabilities. That's just natural. But you have to navigate that emotionally as a parent and not let it color your interactions with them or, or fog your perception to the point where you don't appreciate the fact that they're here at all. And that's the danger, that you can get lost in the grief and sort of miss what's most important. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Erin Hosier. On this special Father's Day episode of Tell Me About Your Father, I talked to my old friend and real-life dad of two, Brad Listy, the author and host of the Other People podcast, where he has epic conversations with legendary writers now in its 10th year. In his new autobiographical novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, Brad has written a love letter of a book to his children, in which he writes candidly about fatherhood and all of its moods, elation, fear, hope, excitement, ambivalence, guilt, and grief, all the terror and all the love. Brad shares how Buddhism and a spiritual practice, which includes a midlife psilocybin mushroom trip with a playlist curated by Johns Hopkins, influences his approach to parenthood. It's a moving conversation that reflects the specific challenges of raising a child with disabilities, negotiating middle age, defining what it means to be a good man, a good parent, and a good writer. I think the answer for all of those is telling the truth. Be Brief and Tell Them Everything is the book title. Other People is the podcast. And Brad Listy is the man. Happy Father's Day. We'll just launch in. Let's do it. Let's talk about the fact that you are my oldest client. Not your age, but when did we meet? We probably met in 2004. Yeah. Spring of 2004 would be my guess. And I was your first and only literary agent, I think. We've been together from the beginning. Like it's never changed. You know, it's been a long, I mean, it's almost 20 years. <laughs> well, I think that speaks to your loyalty, number one. I mean, that's very rare. It's very rare. So thank you for that. Listen. I always said, if anybody takes me on, unless they're like egregiously inept or like not doing their job, I am a loyal human being. I don't like the idea of stepping on someone's skull on your way to the mountaintop. Do you know what I'm saying? Like using people as like climbing levers or something like that's not how I roll. So yeah. I don't know. we've always been good. And I've, I've always appreciated the fact that when I didn't have anything or anyone, you took me on. So I try to honor that. You are from the Midwest. Correct. Can you give us a little bit of your background? Where did you grow up? I was born in Milwaukee 
And then there was a brief interlude in the Bay Area of California when I was really young, like two and three years old. And then it was back to Milwaukee until I was about 11. And then we moved to Indianapolis, which is where I went to junior high and high school. But my parents have Southern roots. So I have this kind of, you know, like genealogical heritage in Louisiana. And I'm very Cajun. I was thinking about this the other day. Like my last name is Sicilian, but I think the the bulk of my genes are French. And the bulk of those French genes are Cajun French. You have two sisters. Two sisters, older and a younger. So you're the middle and the the only son. The only son. What is your dad like? Tell me about your father. My dad is the eldest boy in a family of four children. His older sister was tragically killed in a uh, drunk driving accident when he was a freshman in college. So then he became the eldest. He was the first in his family to go to college and to graduate. I think that if I mean, I'm totally like armchair psyching this, but I think that his sister's death at that particular point in his life put a certain level of responsibility on his shoulders, both for the care of his parents, but also to make sure that he succeeded, you know, that he, he mm-hmm. did right by them and took advantage of the opportunity that he had. And, you know, all the stuff that goes along with being the eldest son and the first to go to college. So he's one of these like great American success story kind of people. He worked really, really hard for a long time and kind of climbed his way slowly up the mountain and did almost everything right. I mean, he's been just a really good dad, always there for us, incredibly supportive. Like we don't, we haven't always seen eye to eye politically, though that's changed. But mm. I think it's a credit to him that even though we haven't, and even though I'm sort of the, more of the wild, I'm the son who maybe, or the child who maybe ch- challenged him the most on those fronts. It never affected our relationship in any kind of serious way. Right. Uh, we've always been able to talk about stuff or have those kinds of disagreements without it becoming like super personal or something. So I just, I'm one of the lucky ones. I have great parents, you know? I don't have any complaints. Yeah. I mean, you talk to so many writers and so many memoirists and so many books are born of tumultuous childhoods. Yeah. I think people who are, who are making art are usually, or, you know, often have things in their past or in their childhood that were particularly difficult. I think on some level I'm no different. It just wasn't my parents, you know, it was kind of tragic death that sort of like scarred me and shaped me if I had to point to something. I mean, who knows? I, I think I have some genetic predisposition and and then it was uh, you know, a taking like a Myers Briggs test, having teachers <laughs> tell me that I was good at something like this is this is what's funny is that I've talked to all these writers on my show, on my podcast over the years. And I cannot tell you how many of them have looked at me and been like, you know, I had a teacher who told me I was good at writing. And yeah. this makes total sense, but it also kind of makes me laugh. It's because we have so little self-knowledge, especially maybe when we're young. And to have somebody look at you and tell you that you're good at something mm-hmm. like really makes a difference. <laughs> like like to the point that you'll, you'll, you know, your entire life course will be shaped by it because we're all so starved for somebody to like look at us and be like, yeah, this is it. You're good at it. And so that happened to me. I mentioned this Myers-Briggs test because I distinctly remember when I was like a 
you know, like a junior or senior in high school, my dad, of course, getting all like my sister and I, a Myers-Briggs test to help us like as we like (laughs) entered college, you know, and I got, I was like, what, like an INFJ, but I was like very borderline E. I was like almost like straight down the middle, IE, like introvert, extrovert, but leaning a little bit introvert. And he was like, oh, you know, he read me my results and he was like, you are Steven Spielberg. Like you're a storyteller and like just blowing all this smoke at me. But I'm sitting there at like age 17 listening to this. And I went on to college and what did I major in? I majored in film, which wasn't quite right, but you know, it was on that track. And so I kind of yeah. like, it's hard not to look back and laugh a little bit, like how clueless I was and how impressionable I was. Well, how lucky to have a parent that can actually see it and mirror it for you. I mean, yeah, my, neither of my parents are, are artists. I have a little bit of that in my family line, like more visual artists. I have an aunt and an uncle who are talented as visual artists. And then my great grandfather on my mom's side was a very gifted musician. You know, my dad's a really good writer and communicator. What's he do for a living? He was a businessman his whole career, worked in the food business. So very far field from writing and publishing, which I think has been uh, frustrating for him, as I think it would be for any father or parent who cares when you just have not much idea of what, like how to advise your child going into a business that has nothing to do at all with what you know. Right. You know, not that he hasn't tried. I think a lot of parents do this. Like I, I was on Twitter the other day and there was some comedian tweeting about something, but it was like his dad was advising him to like go for SNL because they were doing a big <laughs> staff shakeup. You know? yeah. So that's the sort of stuff that like my dad will, you know, he'd be like, listen, th- these eBooks, they're red hot right now. You know, you, gotta, <laughs> you know, they mean well, and it's a, uh, it's very sweet, but I think there's kind of a strangeness to being wired the way that I am. And then having parents who have no like angle on it in an immediate way, you know, and it's not their fault. It's just one of these oddities of the way I turned out, I guess. When we met, you were in your 20s. I think we're at the same age, probably. When, what year were you born? 75. Yeah. When we met, you had a dog, Merlin. Yep. No girlfriend at the time. Nope. You were doing things like hiking the Appalachian Trail with your dog. (laughs) And at one point you got, I don't know if it was your first apartment, but you moved to West Hollywood. So I've sort of seen you through the phases of your life a little bit. Sure. But talk about meeting your wife, um, who in your incredible novel, which is autofiction where you change names, her name is Franny. So we'll call her Franny. When did you meet Franny? Would have been 2005. So the year after you and I met, I met her at a friend's birthday party. We were sort of set up, but not really. It was just kind of like you guys need to meet kind of thing. And uh, both of us resisted it because that always freaked both of us out when people would do that to us. But sure enough, you know, it wasn't like immediate, but there was immediate comfort level. I remember the first night we met, I like, I don't know, I was a little drunk. She was leaving and I was like, can I split a cab home with you? We didn't go home together or anything, but like just took a cab home. So there was like some weird attraction going on, but it wasn't like love at first sight. But once we started dating, it didn't take very long for me anyway to know. Like I was like, oh, okay. Like this is the one. I feel like I kind of somehow knew. Maybe I had to talk her into it. (laughs) Well, so how old were you when you got married? 
I got married in 2007, so I guess that would have been 32. Okay. 31, 32. That's a legit adult. Yeah. Well, and I feel like for our generation, you know, that's sort of on brand. I think we got like Gen X got married in early to mid thirties, the people who chose to get married. Whereas like our parents' generation, they were like married. My mom was married and pregnant by 22. Totally. You know. So when you were deciding or when you guys were talking about your lives together and your vows and all of that, did you actively talk about children and try to imagine your family? I mean, not as much as some people. Like, we didn't talk about even getting engaged. That was kind of a, I just sort of sprung that on her, which my dad also did, I think, to some extent to my mom. Like, we were not one of these couples where, like, we went out ring shopping before the moment or, like, had some sort of, like, super detailed plan about our family. Yeah, we went two years after we got married, and then we started trying to conceive. And I think it was basically like, well, we're not getting any younger. I -hmm. always wanted to have kids. I think she wanted to have kids. And we just were like, okay, let's go for it. The time is now biologically. I mean, that's how I recall it anyway. I don't remember us having like a long detailed plan. Neither of us is like super type A in that way. Maybe to our detriment, but you know, like we just, we went for it. And then suddenly it was like Christmas time, I remember. And we were in Utah with my whole family. We went to like a ski town, even though I'm the only person in my family that skis. That's nice of them. I was skiing all day and everyone else was like, I don't know what they were doing, but yeah, we got the, I'll never forget. We got the positive test and we were like, should we keep it a secret? And then I just blurted it out before dinner because I couldn't take it. It was like too much to sit on that secret. And luckily it worked out because it was very early in the pregnancy. And I would subsequently learn that you, you know, you shouldn't really talk about a pregnancy too soon because then you have to call everybody back and tell them that, you know, you've lost the pregnancy, which happened to us five times after our daughter was born. Mm. So it was a relatively uneventful, uh, well, no pregnancy is uneventful. Yeah. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, with the benefit of hindsight, it was a a breeze compared to everything that we went through subsequently. But even though it was a breeze, there was a moment, I think, when we did some testing where the, the, you know, the doctor was like, wow, there's something going on with the heart here. I don't know hardly anybody who's gone through a pregnancy that hasn't had a scare like that. Like doctors will say stuff to you. That sort of stuff happens more than you would like to think. And I've, I've kind of mentioned it to friends of mine before and they're like, oh yeah, doctor told us that like, you know, our kid was going to have such and such ailment. And I don't know what they're doing. You know, maybe they're trying to err on the side of caution and avoid malpractice suits or something. And so they have an, uh, an out. They can tell you that they mentioned it, <laughs> but it's not something that is pleasant. You know, it's not a pleasant part of the process for sure. Talk about anxiety. So much, so much. <sighs> What's it like to be the partner of a pregnant person? In your case, your wife. I've always wondered what men think or what the non-pregnant partner feels i felt left out you feel sort of like you can't you know you feel sort of like uh useless in a lot of ways not only when they're pregnant but also when the baby arrives in those early days because so much of the feeding falls on the mom so the baby's very like you know it's very mom-centric this in those first days and so yeah i mean you try your best to sort of help out and i felt i did feel a sense of real acute caring and protectiveness 
that I think is biological. Like I think a lot of men feel that way when their wives are pregnant. You want to make sure they're well fed. You want to make sure they're resting. You want to make sure that, you know, nothing happens to them. Yeah. <laughs> there was that. Foot rub. Yeah. I mean, anything, you know, just like, are you okay? Yeah. Everything's all right. The baby's okay. He's, you know, cause you, you do have like a lot of shared anxiety about how the baby's doing, you know? And then yeah. at the same time, how you, your wife is doing physically. And, and then especially once the miscarriages start happening, you want to talk about anxiety, like the, the consecutive miscarriages with each one, it ratchets up and it becomes more tense. And then there's this, there's kind of this awful ride that you go on where you're hopeful, you're hopeful, you're hopeful. And then it's like, no. And it like just shatters and it just gets worse with each one. That was my experience of it. So that part of it, you especially feel hope or, um, helpless because all of this physical burden is falling on your spouse, you know, and you're sort of there as a close witness, but it's much more personal for the woman or experienced much more physically and deeply, you know, it's just a, it's a different experience for them. And I think it's, it's more intense. Your daughter, um, Alice in the book. She was born healthy. She was born before you had experienced any miscarriages. Yeah, right? it was easy. I mean, it was a uh, 24 hours of labor and it was a little bit dramatic because like childbirth also, there are a million stories like this, but my wife's water broke pretty dramatically with both of our kids. And so when my daughter was in the chute, so to speak, there wasn't as much amniotic fluid as there should have been. So the contractions were sort of squeezing her without the benefit of that amniotic fluid around her to cushion the, the mm. blow. So then her heart rate in the womb or whatever started to go down. She was getting <laughs> crushed basically. <laughs> yeah. So then they had to come in in an emergency fashion and reflush the womb with all this fluid. Ew. Um, yeah. They basically <laughs> shoot fluid into your into my wife and they kind of rebooted the labor process as I oh. recall it. I mean, I'm speaking as a lay person, you know, but this is just my remembered version of it, but they had to do that. And then it was like, you know, another 12 hours and then, yeah, she came out and that's wild. Yeah, <laughs> like that is, That's always going to be a stunner, you know, it's never not kind of shocking and uh, magical and just gross and wild, all the things, you know, it's all yeah. that. And then did you look, you know what I mean? Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, like you saw it off. I don't know. Like, I think that's kind of antiquated this, the men waiting outside with their cigar or whatever, like when you're in there, I mean, unless you're really queasy around medical stuff and you just can't take it, good luck not looking like, I don't know how you would avoid it. You know, I was like holding one of the legs and it was right there. And in that moment, it's not, it wasn't a big deal for me at all. You're just worried. You just want to hear the baby cry. You want to see the baby after all this time where it's in, in utero, you know, you're like, oh my God, this thing's actual. It's coming, you know? So she came out, she cried, they do all the tests. And I remember distinctly her opening her eyes and the two of us locking eyes and feeling very Mm -hmm. much like she's fine. Like, okay, she's here. So that was good. That was a, those are great moments and also kind of stupefying moments because it's like, oh shit, like now she's here. <laughs> now what? <laughs> you think you've reached some sort of terminus, but it's really just the beginning. What surprised you about having a tiny infant in your life for the first time? If anything, I mean, I'm sure you had all the showers and read all the books. Really? No, though. I didn't go to a single shower. You didn't? No, not that I recall. <laughs> and I did not read a single book and still have not. 
Oh, maybe a couple books about disability I've paid page through, but I'm kind of resistant to that. And maybe to my detriment, you know, I can be resistant to things that make me uncomfortable sometimes, but there's a part of me that's like, you know what? Human beings have been doing this. I don't know. I think that the parenting books explicitly, like how to be a dad are maybe supplanted in my life by like Buddhism books. So it's not that I'm not reading stuff to sort of like help me along my way in terms of how I relate to my kids. I just lens it through Buddhist stuff. Some of the stuff in the section at the bookstore where it's like parenting, I go in there and it just makes my anxiety ratchet up. It doesn't comfort me. <laughs> and I don't know, there's just been some, there's always been some resistance, but I'm sure there are some great books in that section that could help me. Watching Alice grow up, um, how old were you before you guys started trying to have another? I think she was two. Because, uh, you know, my son was born in 2015. Alice was born, or my daughter was born in 2010. So yeah, maybe 2012 we started and took us three years to finally get to where we had my son. And five miscarriages in between. How did you decide to keep going? I mean, did you have a vision? Like, our family won't be complete yes. until we have enough. Yeah. But I feel some guilt about that, if I'm honest, because I think I had that more than my wife did. I was always mm -hmm. like, I feel like there's an empty chair at the table, you know, when we sit down for dinner. And I wanted our daughter to have a sibling. Uh, I didn't want more than two kids, but I just didn't want her to be alone. I wanted her to have a sibling. And I think, too, like the way that I'm wired is that like I'm not a quitter. I have a really hard time quitting. Uh, evidenced by my writing career. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I lock on to something, or like podcasting for 11 years and 800 episodes, like when I do something, <laughs> I like to see things through and I don't like to give up um, yeah. if I feel like it's a worth worthy project or something. And so in my mind, and I feel like I had a pretty decent deficit in terms of like the medical landscape and understanding like maternal biology and all the things that go along with it, especially as we age, I was just like, you know what? It's a mathematics game. Like we keep getting unlucky, but we're going to get lucky and it's going to work out. And I think that was sort of the attitude. And I think it was shared to a degree. Um, I worry that I, you know, that I didn't think it through enough. I, that's a guilt that I carry with me. And so finally it took, it must have been a, a nerve wracking pregnancy. So nerve wracking. You cannot, I mean, there are like, there are also moments of great elation, you know, when you see the heartbeat and you're going in there and things are going well. And then of course there was a scare. There was like a sort of awful appointment with a doctor that did the CVS test. I mean, it's a really long, sad story, the details, you know, of it all. But basically we were terrified of, um, having another miscarriage. We didn't want to jostle our son in the womb, you know, like, don't poke him, don't pride him, leave him alone, let yeah. him be safe. And so we ended up testing for, um, stuff in a way that we didn't realize had some degree of, uh, some margin for error and we got false negatives. Um, oh. so we tested, we thought we were in the clear, but there was like some margin for error in the test itself. And we were not told that. Is this the 16 week or the 20 week? Yeah. One of those, yeah. you know, and, uh, we were just so terrified of having an, uh, having another loss. You know, you can imagine as parents how you would be. So it was an honest, I mean, it was an error. Like I, again, nobody told me 
And then I think it's also emotionally understandable, you know, to be that protective and nervous after five losses. So it's one of those things you sort of have to forgive yourself for. And then also, you know, our son is wonderful. So in a way it's like the biggest blessing ever because it gets a little bit tricky to think about all the different scenarios that could have unfolded had we known. And, you know, it's really a big mind fuck, all of this stuff. And a lot of parents, not a ton, but a lot of people go through it in this world. And I think in my book, I was trying to portray it at least somewhat accurately, you know, the psychological experience of it, because it doesn't get talked about much. So what happened next? At what point did you realize or find out that there were challenges? Not until six months officially. I think there were signs and worries before that, but you sort of just tell yourself, oh, it's just like... Yeah. I'm just I'm just getting worked up. It's easy to be kind of obsessive and neurotic and worried as a parent of a newborn, you know, especially when you're like us and we didn't know a ton. I don't know if any parents know a ton. So I was less worried because there were no indications from doctors that there was anything wrong. We didn't get anything serious at the hospital when he was born, nor did we get anything subsequently at his pediatric appointments, which I took him to. But then my wife you know, we noticed that when you pick him up, his left arm would go behind his back Mm. and he wasn't like rolling over or doing some of the things that infants his age were doing. And it wasn't, you know, he was only five or six months old. So it wasn't like, it wasn't crazy that it wasn't happening yet. Maybe he was just a bit slow, you know? So I took him in for his six month appointment, I think. And I mentioned the fist to the doctor, which I write about in the book. And that was when she referred us to a pediatric neurologist just to be safe. And that then kicked off a process that involved an MRI of his brain and then, you know, diagnoses that followed, which, you know, in the book and in this conversation, I'm not going to go, I don't go into fully just because I feel like some degree of protectiveness, but, um, like, a physical, like kind of partial paralysis on the left side of his body, which is also known as like a cerebral palsy, which I learned is an umbrella term for a a wide range of like, what is it? Neurophysical challenges. You know, it could be somebody who barely has a hitch in their step that you almost don't even notice to somebody who is kind of like lying on their back and needs a feeding tube, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's a wide range. And so for him, it's fairly mild. Like he can walk on his own now, which we're really happy about. Um, there's some compromise in his left hand. He has epilepsy. You know, that's what I go into in the book. And, um, you know, that should be enough, but the poor kid, he got hit with a lot. Yeah. How old are your kids now? They are 11 and six and will be 12 and seven this summer. Believe it or not. It's wild. Yeah. I mean, your daughter is, I've met her. She is such a spitfire. So self-possessed and clearly a communicator and a writer, I have to say, because she's quick, she's wordy. She just wrote a book. She just wrote her first (laughs) book and like printed it out and like just brought it to me. (laughs) I'm like, oh boy, here we go. But she's, uh, she's a very sweet kid. I hope it stays that way. She's like, she's very bright, but very kind. People always know, like she's very good with her brother. They've never fought. She's never laid a hand on him. Occasionally she'll get frustrated, but I mean, it's unusual. She's very, very sweet kid. And your son, like, describe him and his personality and his spirit. 
also also very sweet happy kid right now perseverates a little bit <laughs> he's been saying like he says he's really fixated on bad words right now so he'll say like <laughs> he got in trouble today in uh, in his school they teach mandarin as they do these days in oh, schools. Sure. so he's in mandarin class and i guess he said shit repeatedly which in mandarin or I, yeah i know he said it in english you know he, okay. he's really like yeah I remember being into bad words when I was his age too, but the difference is that like he has less self-control when it comes, they'll say him to anybody. <laughs> yeah. So there's lots of that. Same. And so there's just, I don't know, there's, it's a bigger challenge parenting a child with disabilities, like just logistically and in terms of a learning curve. feels like there's more of a learning curve in terms of how to communicate with a child who has some expressive disorders. Um, you know, it's not that like, he can talk, it's just different. You know, like my daughter at the same age, I think the kinds of conversations that we were having were maybe different and there wasn't as much navigating to do. Um, but that's on me, you know, it's like you learn your way. Do you read with the kids? Yeah. I mean, we're reading, I'm reading him Harry Potter right now. He's really into that. He's very into Star Wars. I mean, there's so much about him that's very typical, like six-year-old boy. But in terms of like comprehension, like maybe a little bit more explaining goes into it, supplementing with movies, like trying to kind of like, not as much as maybe sticking as stuck with my daughter who like is one of those super sticky kids who like nothing misses her, you know, like almost to a degree that's annoying sometimes where you're like, why do you have to remember that? You know? (laughs) Yeah. So it's just different, you know, it presents challenges and like, there's like heartbreaks that go along with it. You know, you never want to see your kids struggle. No parent wants their child to have to deal with disabilities. That's just natural, but you have to navigate that emotionally as a parent and not let it color your interactions with them or, or fog your perception to the point where you don't appreciate the fact that they're here at all. And that's the danger that you can get lost in the grief and sort of miss what's most important. So that's what I've always been trying to do. Yeah. You're an incredibly positive and hopeful person. And it seems like you're always living in the moment. So I'm not surprised that you didn't read a lot of parenting books. I mean, but I do read a lot of Buddhism books. (laughs) Which is, it's the same thing. It's really like how to deal with your suffering. And that whole paradigm works for me, so far anyway. I've not come close to exhausting it. It doesn't, there's not diminishing returns. And it, I'm, the, I'm a person who needs like a system, you know? Like I like the discipline of it. I even like the austerity of it to a degree. Like I like to sit on a cushion every day and have that time. And I think in the absence of that, I would probably have fewer emotional and psychological tools at my disposal to cope with like pretty dark, sad feelings that come up inevitably around this stuff. I don't, I don't think there's any parent who goes through this, who doesn't have them, but meditation, reading, writing, uh, and then occasionally taking mushrooms, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we'll talk about that. Yeah. But I, I'm just saying like, I, cause I've been asked this, it's like, why didn't you just go to therapy? You know? And I think it's a fair question, but I sort of did in my way. It's just, a, you know, maybe more of an Eastern model than a western model yeah when did you get into it was there an impetus for your spirituality my friend killing himself in college that was a big one (laughs) um we had just come back from a semester abroad 
and we're like sort of on top of the world, like on top of the world in a very youthful way in kind of an immature way, but it was beautiful. It's like just the glory of youth. You know, we were very lucky young people who got to go do a semester abroad. And you know how, when you travel, when you're like 19, you think, you know, everything like that's, mm. it was probably insufferable, but we were feeling really great. And then just a couple of weeks after we got back out of nowhere to me anyway, um, that was how it felt. He took his own life and that was just shattering, you know, uh, yeah. and completely destabilizing because I went from sort of this really high, high to this incredibly low, low very quickly. And it was likely a case of PTSD, I think, um, though I was never diagnosed and I was like in a bookstore as a, a writerly person does. I went to a bookstore and was there and I picked up, uh, wherever you go, there you are by John Kabat-Zinn. And I liked the title. Yeah. Like, you know, it was like simple as that. It really was. It's a very simple distillation of mindfulness practice, essentially, and maybe some Buddhist psychology, but so, like delivered in layman's terms, as I recall. I haven't read the book in a long time. Yeah. And then I started going to this ashram <laughs> to learn how to meditate because I didn't know, you know, and I'm like, well, I should go to this ashram. They let you come for free. And I mean, the most beautiful place. You would not believe how beautiful this property was in El Dorado Canyon. Just, uh, south of boulder and i would go there how old was i i was 20 years old wow. and i would uh i would be in these like this quonset hut with all these old people basically who are like in their 50s and 60s and then there was me i was like a kid and then there's like the outrageous i think i described the teacher in the book as like having like outrageous serenity you know with like gray braids you know that's what i remember is the gray braids like the silver mm -hmm. the silver hair braided up and then just like oh yeah so peaceful to a degree that I couldn't understand. But so that, that was it, you know, it was that. And then, then I had a bad low back, you know, ever since high school. And I was told to try yoga by some hippie doctor in Boulder. So then I got into yoga. Mm -hmm. If you really want to know, I think with the benefit of hindsight that in my youth as like a young guy in his twenties filled with all sorts of like PTSD and grief and just all the energy of youth, you know, and maybe also like coming off a college experience where I did too many drugs, at, mm -hmm. at least for the first year and a half. It wasn't really that long in retrospect, but to me, I felt like, like Keith Richards or something, you know, like, <laughs> it, was, it was really a weak performance by me, but it was just psychedelics and party drugs and too much pot and beer and cigarettes and all the stuff of college. And, you yeah. know, I started doing yoga and that worked for me because I think it was physical. Uh, whereas yeah. seated meditation, when I was like 22, I, I wasn't ready. I needed to move to settle myself. I was too kinetic. And then right. I did in my 20s, I probably practiced like rigorous, like Ashtanga based, not Ashtanga exactly, but Ashtanga-ish, like vinyasa flow yoga, like six or seven days a week for my wow. entire 20s. <laughs> like I was, wow. I was really, committed and uh can you do the crow oh yeah oh my god you can do I can, it all? i mean i have a broken knee right now but i can still at age almost 47 i can i can do a handstand wow. so i uh i just practiced a lot and it, like again like i like a system i was like okay mm -hmm. so if i do this every day i'm gonna feel good physically and mentally and like whatever spiritually however you want to define that part of it but like the way i used to describe it as a joke i was like this feels like a bong hit but without the paranoia that was how it was just to have that like physical activity. And that says something about the 
practice of yoga, I think it also just says something about the way that I'm wired. Like I'm a person who has to exercise and Right. Well, your first novel is called Attention Deficit Disorder. Yeah. And you do tend to write about our collective, I don't know if it's mental illness, but just our quirks, the ADD of the culture and the ADHD of adults. I think I'm interested in what we put our attention on. I'm interested in what I put my attention on consistently, you know, like that's what I think a meditative practice brings into high relief. You go, oh, wow, I'm really fixated on this argument that I had three years ago with a friend. I keep playing it on a loop in my head or whatever it is, you know, like you'll see yourself if you sit there enough or if you do a yoga practice enough. Like if you pay attention to your mind, you're going to learn how it works, at least to some degree. And so I don't have, I don't think any kind of clinical or what do you call it? Like diagnosable ADD or ADHD. I don't think I, I have any of that, but I definitely have the sort of in quotes version that we all have due to living in internet culture yeah. uh, and into like in just modern culture period. Like it's pretty natural to be scattered in this environment and pretty natural to be scattered as a human being. I mean, I think it's partly just the human condition in any era. Do you mostly work from home? I try to. Yeah. I, I don't like, I think I get too self-conscious like early in my like twenties when I was precious and like 24 and just starting out, I would go to cafes, <laughs> you sure. know, my little <laughs> notebook or something, but that just gets to be like advertised introspection. Like I'm annoyed with myself that I did that. I always joke that like, there's no like mistake, like writerly faux pas that I committed every single one, literally everyone, every cliche. I had no idea what I was doing. But nowadays, I'm in the garage here, usually in a quiet room. That's where I can concentrate best. It's the least yeah. logistically complicated because I can go inside and help with the kids if I need to, or, you know, it's all right here. So I'm lucky to have this space. This garage is sort of my, it's a sanctuary for that sort of stuff because it's detached from the house. Yeah. So it's like its own little room. So it's just a, a lucky stroke. Do you ever feel guilty or removed from the kids or does your work help you connect more? I mean, maybe a little of both. I don't think there's any working parent who doesn't experience some guilt about their availability to their kids. But when I think back on my youth, like my dad traveled like twice a month, at least when I was growing up, mm -hmm. he wound up going to Harvard for like an advanced business degree when I was in elementary school and was gone for like a while. Wow. Yeah. But it was like, you know, what he had to do. And I, growing up, had no sense of lack. Um, okay. So whenever I feel guilty, I'm like, listen, I am around my kids more than my dad ever was around me. And I never felt neglected. So hopefully they feel like I was around for them, you know. But there are times, like writing is such a inward, solitary, plodding pursuit. And it requires this, you know, this time and space that other people sort of have to participate in protecting for you. And so there are times where you feel sort of selfish, especially when it's not going well, because then you're like, I'm asking them to do all this for me and I can't even make this book work. You know, it's just frustrating and yeah. you feel kind of like a jackass, but I'm very lucky. You know, my wife is very supportive and does a ton and is sort of like the glue that holds us all together. And uh, she deserves a ton of the credit for that because it's just sort of like this unsung stuff that, she does, you know, always and kind of intuits when I need space and helps to protect that space for me. And that's like a very advanced form of caring that I'm very grateful for. Yeah, that's real love. I think so.
Oh, hi there. This is Matthew Philp. When we started producing Tell Me About Your Father back in 2019, Erin and Elizabeth and I did a lot of research into the best podcasting programs. One program that we're happy to have found and still use is Anchor by Spotify. It's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, now let's get back to whichever specific episode of Tell Me About Your Father you're currently listening to. Well, so your book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And it's like a letter, a long letter to your kids and a short novel for us. It's couched in sort of advice, but not really. I mean, can you talk about the title and and what you were hoping to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's, it's like it's like less advice and more like me working through my confusion on the page, yeah. uh, hopefully artfully. It's also a book that I tried to be uh, very confessional in, very vulnerable in, to a degree that it has been interesting for me to experience now that it's out there and I'm hearing from people who know me in particular. Like, I really think this is a book that's a much different reading experience for somebody who doesn't know me than for somebody who does. Yeah. Uh, like, friends of mine have been like, wow. Like, it's emotional for them in a different way, I think, because they have a line in and they know some of the, moments in the book or people in the book or whatever it is. But, you know, I wrote this final draft during the pandemic in the early months of the pandemic. And to be honest with you, I don't recall being super wound up about it at that stage. I mean, I think there was some degree of like, wow, this is fucking crazy. Like the kids aren't in school and we're homeschooling and the whole world has shut down. So yeah, there was obviously something emotional happening, but I wasn't in my recollection, super fixated on my own fear of death or something. But I did have in my head as a guiding principle for this version of the book to just write it as though I were already dead. So mm. it makes some sense to me that I would have had that operating principle during the early months of the pandemic. It was sort of felt like end times. There yeah. was a nice, you know, there was kind of a, just a general end times vibe. And I think for my purposes, it helped to try to write a book that says things that don't often get said and really goes for it in terms yeah. of candor. And it might be too much for some people. They might go, oh, you know, this is too, like hold stuff back. You know, I think it really is an intimate book, but that's the kind of book I like to read oftentimes. That's what I want from people. You know, I don't want somebody to just like lay all their problems on me. There does have to be some artistry involved. And that was part of the learning curve with this book for me. There has to be something redeeming for the reader. It has to be a narrative that is propulsive and entertaining and hopefully funny at times. But I love it when I feel like somebody's really talking to me yeah. from the heart and like has dropped their mask. That's what I'm always sort of looking for to some extent yeah. in artwork. And I can get it in different ways. It doesn't always have to happen in a memoir or in auto fiction. I can get it another way somehow, but that's what I'm after. And that's what I was trying to create. Well, there's a lengthy section in the book where you write about uh, tripping on mushrooms. Yeah. Recently. Or, you know, in your 40s, right? Something like that, yeah. 
Can you tell us about that? I was kind of like, you know, some dads might do that on the regular and not write about it and not tell anyone. But you had a very intentional, you know, there was a reason behind it. Yeah, I think it was like a corrective to the, I mean, more than anything, it was curiosity. I, I read a lot mm -hmm. about psychedelics. It's an area of fascination for me. Like, I think there's just a lot happening there that is hard to parse. And we're in the early stages of even understanding it. But there's a power to the experiences that are sort of undeniable and inexplicable in many ways and also very ephemeral. So it's very mysterious, yeah. you know, it's like, whoa, something huge just happened to me. And it was like one of the most powerful experiences of my life, but I can't really remember it or tell you about it. Like that's an odd set of circumstances to be dealing with. And then you couple that with being 19 and having no clue at all what these substances really are, what these compounds really are, or what their history is in terms of how they relate to human communities, you know, how indigenous peoples have used them for millennia, you know, and just no context. It was really yeah. just like the wildness of youth and kind of secondhand knowledge from friends and, you know, let's give this a shot. And so I think as I read and got more curious and learned more about the, just the history and the context and the therapeutic benefits and the academic lines of study into that department in particular. But also, you know, it's not just academia where that kind of healing could take place or those kinds of transformative healing experiences could take place. It also happens in like rainforests in South America. I mean, you mm -hmm. can read incredible stories of healing and people kicking heroin, you know, and all this stuff, you know, and people right. do have these accelerated learning curves and healing experiences as a result of this or just deep insights or just really powerfully strange and wondrous experiences that border on the mystical or, or are actually mystical. So for me, it was just reading enough to get super curious, but also wanting to rectify what I saw as sort of the clumsiness of youth and wanting to see what was actually there. And so once again, being somebody who likes a system and like wants to like, yeah. I need a playbook, you know, give me a map. I didn't want to freelance it. You know, I wanted to do it the quote unquote right way. And so I just followed the Johns Hopkins protocol. There's a John Hopkins protocol? Until recently. I mean, I think things pivoted in 2014 or 2015 and more, you know, academic research university settings or whatever were allowed to engage with psychedelics as a subject matter. But prior to that, I want to say Johns Hopkins was one of the only, if not the only school that had any legal permission to mm -hmm. run psilocybin experiments. Um, something like that. You know, I read about it in maybe Michael Pollan's book or read about it online in a million different places, but it's pretty well documented. And what they would do and what I think a lot of psychedelic therapy still does in a more westernized context is they will put a person in a, like a, a comfortable like den-like or living room-like setting, put them on a couch, get them comfortable, lie down. They'll dose them with psilocybin at a reasonably <laughs> high dose. Oh, um, really? Yeah. I mean, it, I don't want to get too definitive about dosage because I'm not an expert, but I know right. just from having, especially having uh, reflected on the experiences of my youth and then also having read like Terrence McKenna and stuff, like if people aren't having a mystical experience on psychedelics, they probably just didn't take enough. Interesting. Uh, but you can also get yourself into some pretty deep water if you take too much. So I, I you know, right. consult your doctor. That's my disclaimer. So these research and therapeutic settings Typically, you'll be, you'll wear a sleep mask to sort of cut yourself off from any 
external visual stimuli and to make the experience entirely inward. And then there is a carefully curated playlist that's like six hours long that you play that's like kind of expertly curated for the experience. Is it music or instructions? No, it's music. It's music and it's on Spotify. You can like search for Johns Hopkins playlist. (laughs) So yeah, I had their actual playlist, which was also great because I was like, I don't have to build a playlist that's six hours long now. And there's actually a lot of these. If you look up psychedelic playlists, there are people who have sort of made a mix that's timed to sort of match a pretty robust psilocybin trip or something. And it reaches a crescendo at like hour four or whatever it is, you know, but so they'll put a person in a room like that. They'll have them in a sleep mask. They'll play the music or they'll dose them and then they'll play the music and then they'll sort of sit with them and be their minder. And I did not have a minder, but I did everything else. And, you know, I meditated for about an hour beforehand. I hiked that morning. I journaled for about an hour and sort of got all my anxiety out on the page, like thinking about what I was worried about, being honest about that, thinking about what I hoped to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, all that stuff in hindsight squares pretty mu- pretty well with what the experience itself was like. It's a very suggestible experience, mm-hmm. the psychedelic experience. So if you listen to the soundtrack from Friday the 13th while you're while you're tripping, you know, you're probably going to have a bad trip. Or if you go into it, you know, wanting to be terrified or thinking about those sorts of things, you know, it's probably going to happen. So you can kind of game it a little bit, but pretty much everybody who knows anything about psychedelics will tell you is that set and setting matter greatly. So mindset going into it and then the actual physical environment that you're in. And if you're in an environment where you don't feel safe or where there are too many variables or where like strangers are coming up to you and trying to convert you to like the Jehovah's Witnesses or something like you're going to have a hard time, you know, like you sort of want to be someplace where you're comfortable and safe. We should say that your family was out of town. Yeah, I was, it was me and the dog. It was me and the dog and the dog was in her crate. So it was really just me and uh, my little altar. I built an altar on the coffee table, like all this stuff. You sort of ritualize it, do these things to sort of make it sacred. I fasted for 24 hours and, uh, it was wild. I feel like a little douchey, like talking about it. It's, there's nothing worse than like a middle-aged bro talking about his mushroom trip. <laughs> but, you know, the thing about it is that it's just, it's so significant to me. And whatever bits of memory I have of it, it was such a powerful experience that you know, I sometimes meet people who are like, I've never done mushrooms. I have no desire. And yeah. maybe if you have like some sort of neuropsych thing going on, like if you're on like a uh, medications or something, then yeah, you you should probably stay away from it. There are lots of cases like that. But for people who are just like not interested, not interested, I'm kind of like, really? Yeah. It seems crazy to me to not like try it like at least once, you know, to see what's there. And I'm so glad to have had these experiences. I should say that the experiences that I had in my youth that were really haphazard and sort of sloppy and, you know, just 19 years old and not knowing what was going on, those experiences were incredibly powerful to me. In the sense that it was like, what the fuck was that? I want to try that again. But like, that was just so strange. And it gives you, or it gave me the sense that like, how does Terrence McKenna put it? Like, it basically gives you the understanding that everything you know might be wrong, which Mm -hmm. is actually a relief. You know, rather than being destabilizing or unsettling to me, it was like, yeah, like this is way weirder than I was giving it credit for. It's like very easy to sort of get caught up in the dream of it and to just go with the flow. 
and let the culture sort of dictate to you what reality is. And psychedelics cut against all of that. And yeah, that can be helpful. Do you feel changed at all as a father? Did you get any insights about parenthood? You know, is there a sense of a before and after? There's a sense of a before and after in terms of the emotional content of the experience. Like it was a very big purge of grief. Uh, I, like I wept for like three or four hours solid to a, in a way that I never have, like not before or since, you know, like. Wow. It was spectacular, like accelerated steroidal weeping. And uh, it had not much to do in a specific way with my son. Um, I'm sure that was part of it, but that wasn't like, it wasn't like some big melodrama about his disabilities or my failures as a parent or any of that kind of stuff. It was more like this generalized well, it was like, I think it was accumulated grief. So it was all the grief that I've ever felt, all the yeah. losses, grandparents, friends, all that stuff. And then maybe even ancestors. Mm-hmm. And that's where the psychedelics, the real psychedelic part of it kicks in. Like, I, I remember having like a very strange encounter with my uh, dad's sister, who I never met, who died in that drunk driving accident. Like, she showed up in a way that wow. was like stunningly powerful. And might have been all in my head. I have no idea. I don't want to overstate the magic of it because I just don't know. But I can tell you it was very powerful. And I don't, I've never had anything like that before. It happened to me. Did you talk to your dad about it? Well, he read the book. I haven't talked to him about it, but he read the book. He read it. Yeah. And my parents, of course, have like, they wouldn't know a mushroom if it like jumped up off the ground and, you know, bit them. (laughs) But, uh, or at least a, a psilocybin mushroom. But, you know, at some point I'll probably will. But it was just so strange, you know, it's just so strange in the way that those experiences are strange. And it, it put me like in physical contact in an embodied way with this grief and in a felt way with all this grief that I had been carrying around. And it did change me in the sense that I got to actually experience it. And it, it was cleansing, it was cleansing. And it's not that there were any like, like really cut and dry answers that I got, you know, you don't, that wasn't the way that it worked. I didn't get like that kind of insight. It was more just like uh, a reckoning with the felt experience of my own accumulated grief in a way that astonished me. Because mm-hmm. you know me, like I'm a guy and I'm probably closed off in some ways, in the ways that human beings often are. But I'm not somebody among my friends who I think you would point to and be like, boy, Brad's really repressed. He can't talk about his insides. Like, no. That isn't no. me. Like I can talk about my insides. I'm, I'll give it a shot. You know, I'm not somebody who buries stuff or so I thought, um, but I'm also not a big crier. Right. Did you ever see your dad cry? Yeah, up? he is a crier. He's a crier. Yeah. As was my paternal grandfather. I mean, not a lot, but yeah, my dad's emotional. You know, he can get emotional wow. and choked up. I've seen it a lot in my life. Like whenever my dad and his dad would say goodbye when we were growing up, we would see them down in Louisiana for the holidays and such. They would say goodbye and it was always like, oh God, here we go. And they would both just weep and hug. And it was like so sweet, but you know, I'm not as, as much of a crier, I guess. So maybe I, you know, maybe I was pushing it down. I don't know. You know, mm. it's just, it astonished me in that way. Cause I thought I had this great self-knowledge from all this writing and introspection, but you know, you, yeah. but what I learned is that we can surprise ourselves. Has your own father surprised you, you know, now that you're in midlife, we're in midlife, your dad's presumably in his 70s. Almost, yeah. He'll be, what, 77 
this fall. I mean, what's he like as a grandfather? And has he talked to you about how he feels about that? About being a grandfather? Yeah. He loves it. He loves yeah. it. Both like, this is the thing, you know, I always thought that I would be a, a parent. I can never remember ever not wanting to have a family. I always thought that I mm -hmm. would. And I think that at least some of that is an outgrowth of coming from like a long line of like relatively happily married people. Like my mom comes from a family of nine, everybody in her family who's married, stayed married, had kids. Wow. Yeah. Like we're like, you know, but then, you know, in our generation among my cousins, there have been some marriages that didn't work out. So it didn't hold, you know, um, but my parents have had a very happy marriage of more than 50 years now and they loved being parents. You know, so I was raised by people who like loved having a family and loved being parents. And so when you're a kid and you're growing up with that, it's like, okay, yeah, this is fun. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think that kind of rubbed off. Um, and maybe it's, you know, maybe my perception of it through that lens was oversimplified. You know, it's more complicated. I think when you're in the parental role than you imagine yeah. being as a kid, but uh, I just had a, you know, I just had a very happy family experience, all things considered, growing up and great parents. And I think my parents have reveled in being grandparents. It's really the best to be a grandparent <laughs> because you get to, you get to sort of relive all of it without the responsibility, you know, right. without having to like, you can sort of check in and check out. That's yeah. the beauty of it, I think. And they're very good grandparents too. You know, my kids love them. So what have your children taught you about yourself, about the world? Well, I mean, a lot. I think they show me my impatience. I've gotten a lot more patient, I think. Not perfect, but like, you know, kids will test you in that way. Probably forced me to prioritize, or didn't force me, but like caused me to prioritize my life in ways that I might not have in their absence, you know, when you have responsibility for two little ones. Yeah. You know, like you, financially. That, but also behaviorally, you know, like how are mm. you going to conduct yourself? You know, they, they're looking to you for exa an example, you know? So yeah, I try to be more than anything. I think my philosophy of parenting is that it has a lot less to do with what I say than it does with what I do. And just the basic example of my own behavior, if I'm shouting a lot or super impatient, that's going to be their model. If I'm, if I'm being a dick, that's not going to be helpful. So I try to just yeah. be steady and be a good model for them. And I don't succeed in every respect. I mean, you talk about money and financial stuff, like that's a huge stressor for most people I know, not everybody, but I think most fathers worry about providing. And when you're a writer and you have a podcast and you're hustling on the side for freelance stuff, it's just like, oh my God, you know, like I yeah. do not have, I think the wiring for maybe more traditional modes of employment, though I think a lot of that has dissipated anyway. Like how many friends of yours do you have who've run the corporate gauntlet? You know, that feels yeah. like a generational shift. Does that even happen anymore? I mean, I don't, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head unless they're, uh, like a professor or something is the closest I can think of. Yeah. I mean, I have some friends at like movie studios. They're the ones who, you know, have, 
they're like movie execs. They've been with the they're studio. Execs. Yeah, they've been execs, and they've been there for their whole careers, and they've done wonderfully well. But like, yeah, that's the that's the exception rather than the rule. So, I think though that you know part of wanting to set a good example from the perspective of doing has to do with how you relate to things like that and how you prioritize things like that. You know, you don't want to be somebody I don't think who identifies himself primarily through what he does, or I don't want to carry around the house that I'm some writer or I'm some producer, you know what I'm saying? Like that kind of stuff. It's important, but I don't think it should be primary. So just trying to be kind and and to be there for them, like to actually give them my attention, which I'm not always great at, but like I, that's a big part of the challenge is just to like actually be giving them my attention when they're asking for it or when I'm with them rather than be like dicking around on my phone or thinking of other things. And it's a day-to-day improvisation. I'm sure there are people who are doing it way better than I am, but I know there are also lots of people who are doing it way worse. And that just seems to be the circumstance of life in general for all kinds of things. How do you handle your kids' fear or their pain or their questions? Did things come up around the pandemic? Whenever there's a school shooting, for instance, anything in the news, do you try to shelter your daughter in particular from that? To some extent, I think, yeah. I mean, there's some things where it's like, you know what, there's going to be plenty of time to reckon with this particular brand of human hell. <laughs> you know, if there's, a, if there's a natural way for us to gently shield her from it, then we'll do that if it makes sense. But if she has a question about it, I'll, I'll answer it. My policy is to try to be as honest as I can be. Sometimes that backfires or I'll like kind of lean into that too hard. And it's like, actually, you needed to modulate that a little bit. Maybe not, not be so blunt. You've terrified your child now or something. But, you know, I try to be gentle and honest and calm, mm-hmm. you know, and to lean into the emotional content of it, not to deny it. Like, wow, this is scary, you know, like that sort of thing. I think that's the best approach that I've found, you know, when it comes to trying to reckon with these things personally or in conversation with a child or something is to acknowledge what's real and what's being felt. Like, how does it make you feel? Yeah, I feel afraid. As long as you're not repressing that and you're allowing your child or yourself to feel it, then you can start to move through it. It's a funny thing. And I kind of write about this in the book, the the challenge of language in parenting around difficult subject matter, like the God question, as I think what I write about in the book, but it could be the disability question or the school shooting question or climate change question or death question or, you know, all this stuff. When you get into that, I think as a writer, I'm always like hypersensitive to language and you're trying to communicate with your child in a way that reaches them at their level, but which does not skimp. You're trying to like be clear and tell the truth, but you're, you've got to like fashion your language in a way that's designed for a 10 year old or something. Yeah. And it's difficult. It's a unique challenge I find communicatively. Cause like I can talk to you about it and kind of spin around in circles and be like the neurotic adult. But with a kid, you know, I find that that part of it for me can be a little bit bumpy and sort of funny in retrospect where you're like, God, because, you know, kids will follow up. They have questions. They don't let you off the hook. You know, yeah. and you can't just be like, wow, I screwed that one up. They'll be alarmed if you make a mistake and they'll ask you, you know, to repeat it or like, I don't understand. I mean, what does that mean? And then you have to sort of, in the book, what is it? You're like, 
we're talking about death and I'm trying to explain it in this like Buddhist way, like sort of cribbing from Buddhist books that I've read. And then she's like, well, will we all still see each other afterwards? And it's like, what do you say? You know, <laughs> like you're just sort of on the spot. I don't want to lie, but if you just say, I don't know, she's probably yeah. going to start crying or she'll ask another, you know, it just gets tricky. And yeah, that's sort of the, it's, you know, one of the funnier and more heartbreaking aspects of parenthood. And then from a writerly perspective, you know, it's like linguistically challenging and interesting. And I'm not, I'm not great at it, to be honest with you. I'm not Come great on. at that, like quick transition into kid speak, you know, that some people I feel mm. like are really good at that. They can really communicate with kids on their level. Mm. And maybe it's just a practice thing. Like maybe it's people who like work with kids or something. Teachers seem to have that facility, which I suppose is learned, you know, as much as it's natural, but. It can stifle me because I spend so much time in my adult world, in my brain, you know, writer-wise, and I'm always talking for the podcast to adults and then to suddenly have to shift into a conversational mode with an eight-year-old who wants to know what happens when you die. (laughs) 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 Yeah. I'm flashing back to just the old days where it was just like you handed your kid a book about their bodies or something and there wasn't really... A dialogue, obviously, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't outside sources. Do you want your kids to come to you or do you sort of respect their privacy? Little of both, little of both. And it depends on the kid, you know, maybe it'll be different for my son than it is for my daughter. Every kid is kind of a bespoke experience, you know, you've got to try to read the room. (laughs) My daughter's going to pick up stuff all over the place, but I hope she can always come to me. I hope she feels that way. You know, I think we're on the cusp of adolescence, so things will probably change for a while anyway. But I would love to be able to build a relationship with her where she sort of always feels comfortable. And I think some of that has to do with like maintaining like an openness and also not being punitive in terms of how you might receive revelations or questions. You know, parents can do that sometimes where they'll get alarmed or they'll try to correct or fix too much and it can actually scare a kid away mm-hmm. i think that can happen so we'll see how i do i mean i'm sure it'll be imperfect but i would love to be able to have her feel like she could tell me anything can you talk about some triumphs that you've gotten to witness as a father when you sort of realize this kid is their own person i suspect any parent would tell you that when you see your kid do something that they love to do and have some success at it and feel proud of themselves while they're doing it, there is something like biochemical that happens in you as a parent. Like you just elated. It's such a good high. I can remember my daughter doing like musical theater performances. Like she played Daddy Warbucks. So they put her in drag. You know, she had her little tuxedo on and they actually, Daddy Warbucks had a nice head of hair in that version. So they had her in like a man wig, like a silver man wig. And she was very nervous but she like did it, you know? And uh, when they come out to do the curtain call with the bows, you're just like, oh, it's too much. <laughs> you know? like, that yeah. sort of stuff as a parent, you just geek out, you just do. And for my son, what I try to say um, when like friends of mine will ask me about it is that, you know, you can never delineate the way that you love your kids. Like you really do just love them both. You might relate to one more easily than the other or have more in common or, you know, that stuff's sort of natural, but you love them both the same. But with a child who has health challenges, it's a kind of like steroidal love because it's mixed with all this grief all the time. 
like there's not a day since his diagnosis that I have not had that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an intense drug. It's a very pure love. <laughs> like wow. if you wondered, if you've ever wondered to yourself, like, do I have the capacity for this? Like that's one of the gifts that having a child with health challenges gives you. It's like, you're just like, there is no question. Like you love those, you know, you love both your kids. And I think that admixture of like grief and love sort of just like spikes the punch bowl. You're just like, whoa. So for him, you know, he didn't walk until he was four. And we had him in like in like physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy intensives. Like he would go to the gym and work out for like three week periods for like five hours a day. I mean, like really working hard with his little body. And so you can imagine when at age four, he starts to take his first independent steps. <laughs> like, mm. You're about ready to like, you know, it's like you have like a bullhorn and uh, you know, silly string and whatever else. You're just ready to go, you know, into like a full freak out mode. You're so happy. So there is that. There's a lot of that, you know, empathetic joy for your kids. And those are great moments. That's the best, right? I mean, that's the stuff you yeah. hold on to and it gets you through the not so great moments. And there's so much drudgery to parenthood and there's so much fear especially these days. I mean, good God, you know, just dropping them off at school every day is just like wrenching and awful now and terrifying. And so the emotional content of parenthood, you, you have to have these moments of joy. Of course you do. You know, they talk about how babies start to smile at like, what is it? 10 weeks or something. Like just when you're about ready to like lose your shit because you've slept two hours a night, you know, then they look up at you and they smile and you go, oh, you like, so it's sort of baked into the cake. You know, you get yeah. the good stuff right on time and it keeps you going. I've enjoyed it. Like for all of its difficulties, it's the, you know, it's the great joy in the center of my life as it is for most parents. It's not always fun. What's the book? All fun and no joy or something like that, or all joy and no fun. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. It's not that fun, but there's a lot of joy. <laughs> Tell me about your father and daddy issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And for bonus content, go to patreon.com slash you guessed it. Tell me about your father where for as little as $3, you'll get access to an extra episode of Daddy Issues every month. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.